Hello, everyone. Welcome back to GWK, the podcast. I'm David Dodge, your host and the executive editor of Gays with Kids, and I'm super excited to be welcoming everyone back to the pod after our short holiday break. We took about a month off, and now we are ready to finish off season two of this podcast with a bang. We we actually went a little bit crazy right before the holidays and recorded just a ton of amazing conversations with folks super relevant to our community of, of queer dads. So we're actually going to go back to publishing these pods on a weekly basis to finish out season two, just so we can make sure we get this content out to you while it's still fresh and relevant. I'm really excited about a lot of what you're going to hear in the coming weeks. We talk with folks at the Trevor Project, for instance, about mental health and LGBTQ youth and also parents. We have a great episode coming out about international adoption with our friends at Spence Chapin, who run one of the only programs available to queer people to adopt abroad. And today's episode is all about self-care and is no less amazing. We have uh, Corey George on the pod today, who is a therapist who focuses on trauma, specifically within the LGBTQ community, and is himself a gay dad. It, uh, it might seem a little bit weird to talk about trauma in an episode um, dedicated to self-care, but uh, you know, it's not exactly a, a massage. But as you'll see from this conversation, I think that this really is super relevant to the idea of taking care of ourselves. Corey works with a lot of his clients with working with queer people to examine their past trauma and to understand how it influences us today still in our lives and our parenting and how the concept of self-care really does need to involve caring for those parts of us that might still be carrying some harm or some or, or some trauma from our past. So I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. It's a really interesting one. And uh, and I hope you enjoy the rest of season two. As, as always, please reach out to us at dads at gayswithkids.com. If you have any uh, feedback for us, we'd love to hear from you. Or if you have a suggestion for a future guest, we are always open ears and uh, really hope that you all are enjoying this as much as we are making it. So uh, with that, I'll uh, turn it over to our conversation with Corey. Corey George, welcome to the podcast. Hello, and thank you for having me. Of course. So you know, before we get into your expertise and, uh, you know, some tips for self-care for queer dads in particular, we, you know, this is a podcast uh, about gay dads and you are one yourself. So I'd love to hear a little bit just about your own journey to fatherhood and anything you want to tell us about your own family. Yeah, sure. My my kids now are 17 and 14, so I have big kids now, but um, we started our journey with babies. That wasn't our, <laughs> my ex-partner and I at the time, it wasn't our original plan. Because we figured we're two grown men with, you know, we have lives, we have, but we have these jobs and all this. And we thought, well, maybe we're not equipped to deal with infants. You know, we wanted a toddler that was already walking. What happens is we kind of make the plan to make it as easy for us. But sometimes the universe has other things in mind. And we went through the, I guess, the training process for adoption in, well, here in DC at the time, which was still kind of new, allowing gay parents it was it was still kind of new at that time so we went through the training process got the certifications home studies all that and so we're called about the possibility and the first one was a two-year-old and and the second was also a two-year-old ideal perfect everything already had the room ready and all of that and we didn't get those and we were disappointed because you kind of have this life plan and you don't account for life happening which is my mantra now um and then one day they called me at work and said hey we have this this infant baby and he's in the hospital uh his mother abandoned him he's going through drug withdrawals you know from cocaine um we needed emergency placement because it's the last day that they can stay in the hospital until they become wards of the state and 
at the time I said, can I call my partner first? Cause I can't make a decision. Cause it was overwhelming that because it was so against our life plan. Call, I put him on conference call with her. So, so she could explain. And we just said, yes, little did we know at the end of the call. Oh, and we're going to bring him by tonight. I don't know. <laughs> like he's coming tonight. I made a mad dash. I left work. I told my boss what's happening. Fortunately, my boss knew the process that we were going through. So he was like, just take off and go. And I think I must have ran to, at the time, went to Kmart. And I was like, what do I put in an infant's room? That wasn't the plan. (laughs) So between probably one o'clock in the evening to about five, I I turned that toddler room into a nursery. But you know, when, you know, when life happens and you want to adjust, you find ways to do that. Absolutely. So we walked downstairs and we're in the town. So we're walking down the stairs to get to the front door. And so the social worker is there, but she says, He's in the car, in the car seat. And I go in the back seat and it's dark. The only thing I see when I look in the in the rear view is his face. And he's 14 days old. I just see this face and he looks like he knows who I am. And that was the journey of getting our firstborn. I fell in love the first moment. I think I cried for three days. It was a hot mess. I cried for three <laughs> days. Um, it was the hottest mess, but it was the best. Um, and I became a dad about three years after we decided, oh, it was time again. Then Justin came along. Justin was about almost two. And um, it's been the most rewarding, scariest, loving, stressful thing I've ever done. I became a dad at 30. I'm 48 now. So they're like my timetables of growth. You know, yeah, um, absolutely. With Justin, he was also born with drugs in his system as well. So we had to come to understand how that would show up later in life. So every year was almost different. It's actually helped me to understand empathy and compassion, patience, and really digging in to say every person is so distinctly different. So now the way my life looks now, my oldest has been diagnosed with autism. So he's 14, he has autism um, and ADHD. Well, I'm sorry, my youngest, that's Justin. The oldest uh, is my trans daughter now. So Jade, um, she started to um, go through the process at age 15. Um, And her journey has been very enlightening, actually both of their journeys. So having them has really, really impacted why I do what I do on some level in a combination of the trauma that I felt as well, the trauma that I dealt with as a child and also being their parent, being in the moment, you know, with them and understanding that um, they deserve the best out of life. So I pride myself on taking the time to see what I can do and also allowing them to tell me where I might feel or where I may improve for their sake, because I don't want to be this regimented dad that says, because I do it this way or because I say this, this is how you do it. But I told my daughter, I said, I don't know much about being trans, so you're going to have to teach me. So that's what our life looks like now. Incredible. We could literally just spend the whole podcast talking just about <laughs> your own family and your journey to fatherhood. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, as luck would have it, you're also very much trained in um, in uh, the world of trauma and helping people yes. process previous trauma. And I think you've already hit the nail on the head a couple of different ways where gay, bi, and trans dads um, in particular uh, might experience trauma um, uniquely in, in some in yeah. some respects because it's our journeys to fatherhood, whether it be through adoption or foster care or co-parenting or surrogacy are often mm-hmm. laden with um, a lot of barriers and difficulties and it's not always yeah. a easy process and it can, you know, parts of it can be traumatic, uh, traumatic and difficult yeah. when you compare it to a lot of our you know heterosexual uh, brothers and sisters. 
but then also you're um, you're talking about uh, the a lot of the children that come into our lives also come from um, uh, backgrounds that have some sort of uh, neglect or abuse or, or trauma. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so so you know the world of trauma um, is very present, and I think in the mm -hmm. lives of a lot of gay, bi, and trans dads, um, not exclusively, obviously, but uh, right. it is something I think that you know something that makes sense for our community to be addressing, which is uh, very much in line with your work. So can you just talk a little bit about uh, your work spe uh, specifically within this area? So for me, my I discovered that I did love mental health, but I really felt that I had a, that I was compelled to work with trauma. Um, really from my own community as a, as a black male in our community, we don't really look at mental health as something that is proactive. It's usually when you're at your wit's end and by that time, it's kind of almost too late or it's so deep that it takes so much work. And having had walked through my own traumas as a victim of childhood rape and abandonment and all this, I brought that into my adulthood. I didn't know that, but I brought that into my adulthood. I, and I brought that into my, uh, into my friendships, into my relationships. And then being um, a gay male, it was very interesting because my sexual assault made me question why I was gay. Is it because of the sexual assault or is it because that's how I genuinely feel? Um, how does that affect my sexual relationships with, you know, with men in the future? Because it was men who raped me. So how does that affect me when I'm trying to be in a loving and, you know, physical relationship? It showed up there, you know, it showed up and I had signs and triggers and I did not know that it was attributed, you know, to that. And then when I went through my healing journey, I, I realized that, wow. Um, this is a lot of stuff that I had to do on my own, but I don't want anyone to have to walk through that alone. So I became an advocate and then I became a coach. And then I said, I'm going to let my 20 year IT career go and follow where I know that I'm supposed to be. I uh, went back to school. And um, once I started to, 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 to study trauma, I said, that's it. That's where I want to be. I'm currently in school now for my doctorates in psychological trauma. And it's the it's the best investment I've done for my own knowledge, but I'm able to help my clients right away with anything I learned. So um, it's a gift. You know, I feel like it's a gift I give back for um, all the people that didn't have that support system because I don't feel I did. And that's what the you know, that's what sometimes the work in trauma is. It's OK for you to decide what you need to feel safe and secure until you can relax your boundaries, because sometimes we don't have boundaries because of the violations. We don't know about, you know, boundaries are, and sometimes they're so loose, we sometimes put ourselves in a position to be re-victimized, and we don't even know it's because we have lax boundaries. But those boundaries, but those lax boundaries are because who who was there to teach us body boundaries if we're being raped? Like, how do you learn that if it's disrupted in childhood? So that's where the root of our work is. I, I think this is another area where trauma can be very present in the lives of gay, bi, and trans men and the mm -hmm. entire LGBTQ plus uh, community is we, as a community, face higher rates of uh, bullying, homelessness, abuse, neglect, Absolutely. sexual assault, Absolutely. all of these things. So even before, uh, you know, for those of us uh, listening that are dads at home, well before you even get to the place of, um, of uh you know, going on your journey to become a parent, you mm -hmm. might have all this other abuse from your childhood that uh, can complicate your ability to uh, be your best self and best parent uh, possible. So, um, so I'm wondering if you could talk, uh, if you don't mind, just a little bit more about your own mm -hmm. uh, healing journey, as you call it, and maybe how some of the trauma you uh, were experiencing uh, manifested as an adult and how you kind of recognized the yeah. signs that you needed to to go on this healing journey. 
No, absolutely. You know, and you mentioned bullying. That was another thing that I dealt with. Um, a lot of middle school, I was teased. Looking back, I guess I was the guy that they can tell was probably gay. I didn't know it. And because I didn't have a definition for it, but I was being teased for it. So sometimes you want to reject that because that's the thing that caused you pain. Like, I know I'm gay, but I don't want to be because that's that's the thing that has hurt me. So uh, that was traumatizing. And again, it, the way it shows up is, well, for me, I I was seeking validation. I, I needed someone outside of me to affirm that I was okay, that I was okay to be in the space. I needed someone to validate instead of love because we mistake love for validation. You know, validation says, make sure that you know that you want it and receive. Love says, if I love you, I protect you. But validation does not equate to protection because the person that we give power to validate us, if they wield it the wrong way, and if they choose to, it could be abusive. Um, you know, I can speak to people and ask, how long have you stayed in an abusive relationship simply because you were afraid to lose the relationship as opposed to losing your life? That the failure or success of just having one, just, just saying on paper you have one, is more important than your internal or your external safety. You know, I think a lot of us would agree that we may have been in that place where it was about validation. And that's one of the consequences of trauma is that we're seeking to belong in sometimes the most dangerous ways. And sometimes we're also seeking to soothe our pain that we're not walking through that can lead to drugs, sex, alcohol, that can lead to other activities that that actually cause avoidance. So we're not talking about it. We're just we're just trying to find a temporary solution for long term pain. And we have to keep doing the same thing so it gets worse. So that's why when we look at people who are on drugs and alcohol, that's a behavior. That's not the problem. So in my practice, I say, okay, I know that you have this, so I'm not going to judge you for what you're doing to, to try to escape. I want to know what the source of that escape is. Right. You know, and so perhaps it's not about the drinking. It's about the fact that when I do drink, I don't have to feel. I don't have to feel that 30-year-old pain. I don't have to feel that that you know you know that ball in my stomach that happens when i'm not facing my pain because because trauma doesn't just affect you on an emotional level it can be a gut pain it can be joint pains it can be you know um heart disease it could be all of these things that show up and we think trauma just looks like oh i'm falling apart but trauma doesn't have a face it has a feeling hey everyone brian rosenberg here founder of gays with kids I have exciting news for those hoping to become dads. Until now, determining your best path to fatherhood and then trying to wrap your head around all the moving parts could best be described as overwhelming, complicated, and sometimes downright baffling. But not anymore. In early February, we're launching GWK Academy, a specialized program created specifically for queer men looking to become dads. GWK Academy should be the very first stop on your journey to fatherhood. First, we'll help you determine your best path to fatherhood. Then, whether you choose surrogacy, adoption, or foster care, we'll give you the information, the resources, and the connections you need so you can launch your own journey feeling prepared, knowledgeable, and confident. So be on the lookout for our official launch announcement at gazewithkids.com and make sure you're following us on social media at gazewithkids. So you mentioned doing um, a lot of work specifically within uh, the black community. So I'm wondering if you can talk just a little bit more about how these issues um, might amplify or be different or just the intersection of all of this. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the primary work because of the cultural shift. But 
I also understand that also being in the LGBTQ community, some of us come into our sexuality under traumatic circumstances. So you, and so your parents find out and they reject you. That's, that's deep. You know, you're, you know, and you're put out of the house and your family doesn't talk to you. Your friends don't talk to you because of their ideals of what they think you should be. You know, and so no one cares about what you feel internally, but their belief is that's wrong. And, and, and it's a choice and you should be able to change your, you know, change your orientation. So as we know, those are lies. And, and I think the show Pose was so excellent in showing that and showing how rejection can turn into a child being on the streets, you know, you know, turning tricks because how, how are they going to actually survive? No one taught them how to be, you know, um, how to be adults and you throw me out and you don't care about my safety. You care about your image or you care about your beliefs. That's right. traumatic. Yeah. And, and, and so, and also I deal with a lot of, well, not a lot, but, but in terms of sex trafficking. So sometimes these kids are put on the streets and then they find someone who takes who takes advantage of, of of their vulnerability. So now we're adding another trauma on top of that because they're just doing what they're either forced to do or if it's prostitution, they're doing what they do do to take care of themselves. So it's so many intersections about yeah. how trauma just in general, it it can impact the LGBTQ community. And later we'll talk about how that can transfer into how we see parenthood as well too. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, that makes for a, um, a great transition into talking about. So, you know, let's, uh, not everyone is, is going to have the same uh, story around trauma. It manifests differently for all mm -hmm. of us. Um, so let's actually, let's take this from the perspective of someone before they become a parent, for instance. Mm -hmm. So what kind sure. of, uh, what kind of tips or advice would you give to someone that's um, maybe on their journey to parenthood and they're starting to try to maybe examine some of this stuff in their past and, and uh, in order to be the best parent possible? You know, I one one lesson I learned because for me, my my father wasn't as emotionally available. So I promised myself that I was going to be a dad. I'm not going to be like him. But what I missed out was asking myself, what kind of parent does Corey want to be? Because parenting is an identity. Parenting is specific. So I would say, check those ills at the door. See what may be prohibiting you from showing up in your parenthood. Yes, you may not want to be like your mom. You may not want to be like your dad because they hurt you. But what kind of parent do you want to be specifically? What things do you hope to teach your child? And don't teach your kids out of fear. Teach them out of peace and love. Because when I became a parent and before I walked through my stuff, I was I was terrified, you know, um, because I was abused. Nobody was able to watch my kid unless I knew you personally. Um, it, there were boundaries and barriers. And I was saying, I'm restricting my child from having a social life because I don't trust anybody with my children because no one took care of me. So again, I'm trying to be the parent that I needed, but it went it went off the Richter for a while. So again, I you know the main advice I tell people that, and you know, and this is what I'm taught in my practice, you know, in terms of my in in terms of my education is check my ills at the door before I go help someone else. Right. Because those ills are going to be integrated into your parenting. Yeah. And you don't want to parent out of out of a place of fear. Because that child will feel that fear and think it's a restriction and they won't know how to cope with the world because some things will happen in the world that you gotta gotta talk them through. And that was the fear for my trans child. You know, when she said trans, I clutched myself because I'm like, I'm not worried about you. I love you, even if you said you were a box of crayons. <laughs> it's the world that I'm worried about. So now I'm petrified for you. So my all my fear came back, but it wasn't for me, it was for her. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, and I think, um, so speaking of our children, you mentioned Pose, for instance, uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, and I think I totally agree. It does a really good job of showing what, um, what, family rejection can uh, can do. And, you know, that show's set in the 80s and 90s. But if you, um, you know, if anyone is under the illusion that that sort of thing is not still happening today, it's, it's very happening. much um, incorrect in the in the nation's foster care system. They estimate between 40 to 50 percent of uh, older youth in the system identify as LGBT, yeah. uh, often age out of the system, you know, rates of homelessness among um youth, uh, there's a huge percentage of people that identify as queer. So this is still happening um, day in and day out. And a lot of queer parents, when they go through the adoption or foster care process, are specifically looking to provide homes for um, for people that have this kind of uh, traumatic background, partly maybe because they've gone through something similar, they at least can identify yeah. as part of the community. Um, so what tips, uh, you know, so let's in the best case scenario, <laughs> let's okay. say you're mentally, you know, everything's fantastic in your life. Uh, how can you best prepare yourself uh, in your home on an ongoing basis to be to show up for kids that that might have trauma of their own? And, and you know, in that obviously manifests in many different ways yeah. in, in our homes. But what can you tell people who are maybe thinking about going the route of adoption or foster care to form their families um, yeah. or those at home that have already done this and are you know looking for some tips for how to how to best parent? Yeah, well, it's to understand that if you're going through the foster care system, all of the kids are there because of something that happened to them, whether it's whether it's neglect, whether it's maltreatment, um, whether it's just that the parents are not showing up. It's such a it's such a difficult degree to know until the child is in your home. But social workers do their best job to tell you everything that they know. Um, and then symptoms manifest in different ways. So if the child is much younger, they won't communicate it, but they'll have it in behavior. You, what you know, and so what you may see as odd may be part of the course for that for for what they've gone through. And so in most cases, if it's a foster care, they will probably have a mental health person that's assigned for that child anyway. But it's good to be able to talk to that therapist after sessions or between to understand how you can offer offer your support specifically for that child. So so and so for example, if a child has experienced, let's say, starvation. It may show up as them hoarding food and you don't understand why they're hoarding food and you want to tell them, hey, but the food is yours. You don't have to hoard it. No, but for them, they don't know that. So food security is their big deal. So I'm going to hoard food under my bed. And prime example of this, my son had an issue with hoarding, but I've had him since he was two. Well, come to find out if that there are some cases where as if the mother starved the child in the womb, the infant actually remembers that starvation. And they don't know that that's what they're doing. So it could be that while the mother was on drugs or doing what she had to do, she was not being fed or 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 the infant wasn't being fed because the priority was the drugs. So it could be that. So it's like, oh, it makes a link now because we've always had food. I was like, well, you have tons of food. I make sure. So being able to have conversations and being able to realize it's not about you. It's not personal. Yeah. And some of these kids have had multiple placements. So they're untrusting. They're it's like a hair trigger. They know that they may be leaving. Or they may do something self-destructive because that's all they know is, you know, it's a shift. So I think that the way that we have to approach this is if you're adopting a child from a foster care system, expect to be present. Expect to make time to be present. There are times where I took jobs where I didn't work as hard or I didn't have overtime because I wanted to make sure I was home with my kids. Um, and, you know, one thing about my ex-partner and I, we've always done the research, meaning if we were aware of something, we did the research. There's a lot of information that could help. And 
And there's also support groups. So if your child has ADHD, if your child has autism, if your child is dealing with other things, there's a lot of online support groups if you don't have time to meet in person. So I would always say to take advantage of the resources because you're going to need them. You've kind of touched um, on this a little bit already, but within the world of adoption and foster care, it is incredibly common um, for um, households to be formed that are transracial, that have mm -hmm. different uh, ethnic language backgrounds. Um, and so it's very, and, and then, you know, often we end up uh, parents to uh, kids who identify as non-binary, trans, that might not be our same lived experience. Um, mm -hmm. So you've just mentioned doing the research, but so how can, or what is the best way for people that um, might be parenting um, children that don't share, uh, you know, the exact same background to best prepare and to learn and to support um, a child of a different race, uh, gender identity, yeah. uh, language background, et cetera. Well, and, but I, but I think you hit it already, but you said just support them. If it's an older child, um, let's say an adolescent or teen, they can, you know, ask them what makes them feel comfortable. You know, maybe it is, um, and so maybe it is a black child. Do you know, are you are you able to integrate him and to keep him associated with this culture? You know, are you able to also participate in them? So you them. So you also understand why that means so much to him. Um, so when things happen on TV and it's not even about, you know, being a black child, but any culture that's experiencing something um, and 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 there's a news broadcast and it's sensitive towards your child. Or even if you don't know, ask the child, how does that affect you? How do you feel about seeing this? And then invite the conversations. And I think that that's the best we can do. Um, I used to assume, but then I said, no, let me invite the conversation it, because kids don't always have language and they depend on us to teach them language about their feelings. So always know that they don't always know what happy or sad or confused is. They can tell you how their body feels, but they, they don't always have the words. But when you say it's okay to feel any way you want, that is not really about a feeling, it's about behavior. So like if I'm angry, anger is a real emotion. If I go off the handles with anger, then that could be negative. But to teach them that whatever they feel is valid. And and again, you want to invite the conversation while, while also doing the research and saying, okay, because if the child is very young, like the child is two or three, and it's a, you know, it's it's a different culture, you may want to see, well, how do I take care of like for example, I see a lot of white parents who have black children, they talk to other black parents about how to comb the hair or what's the best thing to have them integrate into play dates. And you may want to be able to find out. And then as they're older, ask them if there's anything that they would like to do that they haven't done yet. Um, so prime example, when, so my, my oldest child is biracial. We assume that based on the social workers conversation that the child was, you know, black and white. And at 14, I I did ancestry for her because I wanted her to know who her family was because she was abandoned. So I don't know who her mother and father was. Well, ironically, most of her DNA comes from South America and Europe. Uh -huh. And it explains how she looks because every year it's like, it almost looks like she's a different, well, like a different character. I'm like, oh, it makes perfect sense. So I said, listen, Whenever you're ready to talk about this information in the, uh, you know, in the kit, you let me know. But, but, but this is your ethnicity. And I say, whenever you want to experience anything that will have you connected, you let me know. So again, I left it up to her, you know? And so one day she may say, I do want to know who this cousin is that's showing up on this list, but now I think she's okay for now, but just to have the information and, and to show that you support them. 
you, you have the unique experience to be able to talk about raising a biracial uh, child and also a mm -hmm. trans child. Um, so, and, you know, I, I think there's something incredibly unique and uh, amazing about um, you know, LGBT parents being able mm -hmm. to provide this space in their homes for kids to be able to explore their gender identity in, in ways that um, a lot of us weren't able to when we were younger. Um, but again, it's not, you know, I identify as a gay man. I don't know well, mm -hmm. the first thing about the lived experience of a trans person or raising one. Um, so what kind of uh, suggestions would you give to to parents uh, even well before kids might be starting to explore their gender identity um, to just be on the lookout or ways to create an environment where children feel safe to do that? Uh, one of the gifts I gave myself when my when my daughter came out as trans, actually it started from being, she thought she was gay, then she's non-binary, then all these other things. And again, I'm 48, I don't know what these terms mean. I just see them, but I never had to experience <laughs> it. So I'm like, right. it's not my business. I don't know what it is. I don't have to deal with it. And then my daughter became trans and she said, this is it. And I said, oh. And I, I said, well, you're gonna have to teach me because I'm 48. So, and, and I had trans people in my life since I was four, but we use different terms. We address right. it differently. So I said, if I say something out of character that doesn't fit right now, please let me know. So the gift that we have is communication. Right. Um, and funny story is one of her friends, love her friend. She presents as, you know, as a female, but she's non-binary. So every time I say her and she, and so my daughter will say, it's them, it's they, it's them. And I know what she's doing, She's but she's interrupting me to let me know, hey, that's not what she prefers. Right. right. So I welcome that. So I'm not rigid on, okay, well, if she looks like a girl, then it's a girl, so I got to say this. No, I said, this is this is y'all's world that you that you guys are inheriting. What do you need to feel safe? And so again, that's how I welcome it is. Well, you need to feel safe, but the model that I've always had for my children is I will give you a yard, I'll give you a whole yard to play in. But once you but once you hit the fence and you try to open the door, I gotta close the fence back. So the yard is yours, but the barrier is because I love you and I'm your dad, there are some things that you're not yet ready to experience. Right. Yep. You know, Absolutely. Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense, but it's just, you know, the world is changing constantly. Language is changing, mm -hmm. gender identity, uh, sexuality, all, none of these things are rigid, right? So I think mm -hmm. it's, um, yeah, just, it's a gift, I think, that a lot of LGBT parents can give to their children is to provide the space wherever they, you know, and, and to be able to go on that journey that you're saying your daughter went through between identifying as gay to non-binary to train, you know, so to have the space to do that, I think is mm -hmm. new and it's, um, you know, it's, uh, it's an incredible gift that we can give our kids. So we've gone through some, you know, some deep, heavy stuff around trauma, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, which, uh, you know, again, is it's such an important conversation. I'm glad that we can get into it. But the truth right. is being a parent is difficult in the very best of times. Right. So it's it can be difficult to uh, especially right now we're going through just, you know, the, the world's upside down and we're yeah. uh, we're coming out of maybe people are going back to work in offices. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're still trying to uh, homeschool their children. Um, so just. It, it, on the subject of caring for yourself and making sure mm -hmm. that you're showing up for yourself um, so you can be the best parent possible, what kind of advice do you give to people uh, to and to you know queer dads in particular yeah. um, as how they can make sure that they're really looking out for uh, themselves and their well-being, uh, you know, because you know, if you can't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love yeah. anybody else? Well, I will say that, um, so, here's a, so here's the thing I do want to, to share. Um, being a gay, queer, LGBT parent, 
it's probably the most intentional work you'll do. And I say subconsciously, we always know somebody's watching to see how, how our kids turn out because they want because somebody is wanting to to see what that looks like. So I think Absolutely. that we have the yep. privilege of saying we we're we're probably the most intentional parents in the world. Mm-hmm. Because we because at least for me, I can attest. I know there's a pressure because hey, these these are two men trying you know trying to raise a baby. Let's see how the baby turns out. Yep. Um, so that's a pressure, and it's understandable. But also, what I've learned is that there was burnout. I was overdoing it. I was trying to be the best dad because I felt someone was watching, and the and the truth is they're always watching. So let's so let's have a radical acceptance that we know we're being watched. Okay, once we have that, um. But be adamant about what you need. So the gift. So I'm so glad to have my kids because I've had to tell them, hey, I'm not just your dad. I'm Corey. You know, I have a whole life. And when you leave my house, when you've grown, I still got to get my life back. I have an identity. And it was hard because I thought, oh, my whole identity was a parent. You know, but I realized one day I'm teaching them their identity by what I do. So if I only say I'm a dad. Then they think when they become parents, all they do is stop all their dreams, all their goals, and are just dads. I said, but that's not true. So I went back to school. If I'm studying, I say, well, hey, I will, you know, unless it's priority. So once I'm done studying, I will be sure to come in your room and talk to you. So it's about prioritizing, you know, and teaching that it's not about having tons of moments or tons of time. It's about how do you make the moments you have as impactful as possible. Right. That really is it. Um, and understanding that loving yourself teaches your children what self-love looks like so they don't have to try to redefine that as an adult and seeking it in the wrong ways. So if they see mom and dad taking care of themselves, exercising or having a morning run, having that coffee by themselves before they start to work on you on the day, they know that's their time. So we're modeling all that, all that self-care for them. You know, there are times I leave and I go to the gym and they ask me, so what time So what time are you coming back? I'll be back at five. Okay. So at five, I know when I get back, they're going to need something. So, and also being transparent about it, being honest and say, I'm tired. You know, it's okay. I just got home, but can you give me about, you know, a half hour, unless it's an emergency, can I just get a half hour so I can just sit in the, so I can just sit down and just unpack? Absolutely. Because you shouldn't feel guilty about having a life that, is consuming, you know, and you're taking care of them all day and they know that. So there's not much you have to do if you're doing the right thing. So again, it's about being adamant and it's communicating. It's understanding what those needs are. Are you the type of person that needs a walk? Are you the type of person that needs to just sit still? Do you need to run a hot bath? But as you communicate that, then a child doesn't take it personal because what happens is when we don't communicate that, it shows in our behavior, then the child thinks that they're doing way too much or, or, or that they're the burden. I'll tell my kids, hey, I'm a little tired. Um, I'll get back to you, but just give me a few moments. So I don't indicate that it's your fault. I'm just having a day. I'm just having a normal day, but I'm just overwhelmed. So now they know, oh, it's not us. It's just he's tired, you know? I mean, I, I think thinking of it in that way that uh, prioritizing self-care is actually one of the best things you can do for your children as well to yeah. help kind of demonstrate how important that is and that, you know, we're not superheroes, that we we have our own challenges. And like we said at the beginning of the podcast, a lot of us are still dealing with uh, previous trauma that is, mm-hmm. you know, it's a lifelong journey of, of processing and, and, you know, putting yourself first. So, yeah. Um, so you've also touched on something here that I find pretty fascinating. You know, in the seven years I've been working at Gays with Kids, we've run, uh, you know, countless 
photos of beautiful gay dad families on our Instagram and told uh, beautiful stories of how gay dads have become mm-hmm. fathers. And we, and we don't shy away from the difficult parts of those journeys because they're often our barriers um, it placed in our path. But uh, but I, I feel like, so if I were to just ask, um, you know, gay dad family to send me like their favorite family photo that we can run with a piece, it's often, you know, it's picture perfect. Everyone's wearing matching <laughs> clothes and smiling at the camera. It's like, they're like the one family that managed to get a photographer to get, you know, everyone from the toddler on up, everyone's like looking picture perfect. I don't and I think that. it's just, yeah, <laughs> no, it, and you know, no one really does. Yeah, I guess that's, that's the point is I feel like, like you're saying, there's this pressure, there's an assumption that people are watching our families. I think that's a really good way to put it. And it's, you know, I, I, so my journey to fatherhood is I'm a donor to a lesbian couple mm-hmm. Um, and they live up in Connecticut with their moms, my my three kids. Um, and when our first was born, I have this very vivid memory of uh, we're at the baby shower. And, you know, one of the neighborhood um, women came up to me and said, you know, this is just the most fascinating experiment. I'm going to be watching so close to see how this goes. You know, and she didn't mean any ill will by it. But right. I was like, so you're literally saying you're going to be, you know, monitoring our family to see how these kids turn out, which is um, it's a lot of, you know, whether it's ill intention or not, it's pressure. And it's, you know, it's the outside yeah. world is is looking. Um but so, you know, I, I, so I often with uh, families, I, when we're profiling them, I, I want to see the, the messy moments. I want to see, um, you know, what makes them human, what makes them just like any other family. Cause yeah. I do feel like that can be a lot of pressure on us. That's not any, we don't need any other added pressures. Yeah. <laughs> it's already, we have them enough just being queer families. We don't need mm-hmm. to also worry about everyone watching us. Right. So I guess uh, that was a long build up to the question is how do, how do you kind of help uh, queer parents who are dealing with this or just in your own life, uh, what kind of advice would you give people to, you know, I, you know, it seems like the advice is just to not care, but that's easier said than done. Right. Um, yeah, it's easier said than done because think about this when you're, when you first affirm that you're gay or LGBTQ or queer, you go through this censorship of yourself, meaning who's watching, you know, what do people think of me? Um, especially if you're not in a family that has affirmed you in a proper way, you know, and that's, when we're seeking affirmation and, and and we get it from our our foundation, we're less likely to care as much about the outside world because someone else already made us feel loved. Someone else made us made us feel like we're not strange and we're okay. Uh, but it's different when you don't when you don't have that and you're entering the world as an adult. And so and so, not only are you screening for yourself all the time. It's like this clock. It's well. It's it's like this visor always open. But now you're saying, now I'm walking around with this kid. I wonder if they think something's wrong with us because we have this kid and it's me and my husband and we're walking down the street and there's a stroller. It's all these thoughts. So I think that the advice is to breathe and relax. You know, the universe chose you for that child that, and, and also the universe matched that child with you. There was no one else's fault or problem. It was all divine intervention. I don't believe the universe gives us anything that we're not supposed to deal with. So when we take the people out of it, we take the people out, that's the problem. When we take the people out and and we look just at a universal level, am I doing anything that I'm incapable of? Am I prepared? Am I prepared to handle this task? And if so, that's how we start to block out the other things. And it's not to say it's 100%, but it lessens that whole severity of I'm looking at everybody watching me. Because what I tell people is everybody watching you has a story too. Right. Yep. Everybody watching you. All of my clients come from heterosexual parents and I deal with trauma. So on that alone, what can you tell me about my family? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who's watching you? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. And so the assumptions of, you know, we'll break the children. I'm like, no, 
we're actually more cognizant that you think we will, so we probably won't. Absolutely. You know? I mean, we've had we've had countless studies done on our parenting countless, abilities that countless. have proven time and time. Yeah, it's not happening yeah. with heterosexuals. So if anything, and, yes. we, we've proven our ability to parent better than a lot, a yeah, lot of people yeah. who are watching us. Yeah, and also we know what you know. We know what. Well, most of us know what it feels like to to have that social pressure, such as discrimination, such as biases. So right. we're prepared, and we teach our children that, and, and we love as a result. So we try to not inflict that on our children because it's so conscious for us. So I think right. that we have all the preparation. We just have to breathe and say, look, I know what I'm doing. I prepared for this. I didn't go through the training and the certification and making sure my home is baby proof. I didn't go through the consultations with other friends and family who have done this before to not feel like I'm okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so let's end this on a, a lighter note. What, uh, what, what are your top like two to three things that you do for self-care when you're when you're uh, needing it <laughs> okay first thing is an hour's worth of golden girls um, yeah i guess <laughs> i'm here i'm here for that for sure. um i love to cook so when i'm completely stressed out or if i actually it's a twofold i cook because that's my love language for my family um and it's because when i'm stressed just be taking attention from that stuff and i'm focusing on a recipe magic for me and sometimes just um just looking out of a window and realizing I had no control over all this beauty that's outside that I could take advantage of. Amazing. Corey George, thank you so much for all of this. Uh, and why don't you just leave us with a little bit of where people can find you if they're interested in reaching out and learning more about your work or uh, getting Absolutely. a consultation. Absolutely. So if you want to find me, all my handles are, uh, is Corey George Cares. It's at C-O-R-Y. There's no E in Corey. C-O-R-Y George Cares. Uh, you can go to my website and find out more about the work I do and the other projects I've done in multimedia at CoreyGeorge.com. And that's pretty much it. I try to make it as simple as possible. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. It's a really important conversation. We'll definitely have you back to talk about some other tips in the future. Awesome. Uh, but thank you again for sharing this time with us. And thank you for having me.